Johanna, we are here in the House of St. Barnabas in Soho Square. And this is a very exciting day for us because we are starting a podcast season called... What Muses? So I hear that you have prepared a slight introduction. I have, and it's terribly exciting. Um, so I want to explore really a bit about um, why we're doing this to begin with because and why we, we got together because we... Um, we decided that there needs to be more human so insight into the side of transport, seeking out where the human stories are. You know, because too often as transport planners, and more about that a bit later, we forget that this is actually about a mobility service, something that we deliver day in, day out, and it's about people. And without people, what is transport about? What is the point of it? going to explore some of the current issues, some of the not-so-current issues, about how we can really improve the transport experience for everyone. Sometimes we might be looking at the bigger issues, sometimes the Williams Review, um, things like the future of transport, the future of driverless cars, the battle for town space between cars, pedestrian and cyclists, which I know is really important to you. Mm -hmm. And the smallest questions, you know, giving a voice to people that we don't necessarily normally hear about, you know, whether it be the engineers, the designers, the operators, the people delivering the frontline services, or people that you know, use our services, the customer, because that's ultimately what we're about. We want to be a broad church, giving voice and opportunity to a diverse range of interviews as we explore what moves us. So here we are. I'm Joanna Randall and... I'm Liam Henderson. So moving on, on from that, it's probably worth mentioning that we are sitting in Soho Square next to the Crossrail Station, which is not quite open yet. Um, if you hear some drilling, that is them busy at work getting the station ready. Uh, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is, for example, the Crossrail service. All the press is about the fact that it's running late. What that has meant is that West London, the shopping area, for two Christmases now, will not be step-free. People needing step-free access cannot come here. They were promised this. So that is one of the implications of it running late. I think it's interesting that you've brought up the whole crossrail and the delay to crossrail, because as you know, when we arrived here, or I arrived this, here this morning as ever late, um, I have <laughs> because I am always <laughs> late um, and I was exasperated because I probably could have walked quicker because actually I think part of the reason why I was delayed was because of the delay to Crossrail <laughs> and the fact that it's not being it's not being completed because I thought you know nothing simpler than hopping on a bus from Waterloo to come up the West End but it actually involved two buses and I didn't actually end up at my my end destination because the bus terminated short because it couldn't get up Charing Cross Road because of delays and all, all the roadworks that are still going on around the, around yes. the transport infrastructure. Trust me I cycled up that same road and <laughs> well I was going to record some of my cycling, but I don't think you wanted to hear my shouting at those I mean, drivers around me. <laughs> and as the industry, I mean, like, we all go on about how terrible it is, but actually the delay, I mean, like, you mentioned that the second Christmas, that they won't, um, that people won't be able to access step-free access, but yeah. it's also effect, still affecting people day to day. I mean, like, oh, yeah. 
I mean, there's, there's still building sites, there's still holes in the streetscape, which is a shame. But it'll be worth it in the end. It'll be worth <laughs> We hope. Yeah, well. <laughs> so uh, I think we should discuss a little bit about us. Um, I'll, I, I guess I'll go first. Um, I'm obviously Liam Henderson. Um, I have a number of hats. I started life as a transport planner in London, had a bit to do with the Crossrail scheme, mostly to do with Docklands Art Railway and tube extensions. Um, I started transporting cities to focus on passenger experience and I have the lovely task of going around the world reviewing the arrival process at airports, getting people onto trains, which I think we'll come on to quite a bit later. So you say you're a transport planner. I'm yeah. What, what does that mean and how did you get into it? Um, thanks for that interesting question. <laughs> transport planning for me is, um, well, I learned that transport planning and land use go hand in hand. Um, we are facilitating people getting around the city for whatever reasons they need to and the city functioning the way it should do. Um, sort of a reasonable, appropriate transport for each case it's not transport for transport's sake it's to deliver people and goods um, to where they need to be or where we plan for them to be in future in an ideal world we obviously plan transport at the same time as cities and, and I think it's interesting Arnie you say about you know transporting and putting people where they want to be but quite often transport planning is about the infrastructure and the economics and the business case oh yes <laughs> <laughs> concrete boxes um, yeah I think quite often there is a it's it's reduced to sorry to all my transport planning friends for this um, it's reduced to numbers and statistics and spreadsheets as to what's the economically cheapest way of delivering the policy goal rather than thinking about the people using the service um, one example is we tend to build minimum viable stations whereas in some other countries or indeed the major stations in london and the north cities building big inspirational buildings has sort of a unquantifiable benefit to the local area people have pride in their big central station but that would never come out in a spreadsheet or a model and why do you think that is um, because things are designed for people to use and if we don't get them right people won't use them so why is that not considered uh, it's very difficult to because we have to base it on financial case for things and it's very difficult to quantify using the numbers allowed the factors that we're allowed to use it's very difficult to quantify those benefits the social benefits um, which have been allocated a value which has to meet meet the Department for Transport and the Treasury's criteria. I think we should come back to that at a later podcast. We will because, do. Because I think it's interesting to sort of like follow you know, why you've followed a different path um, to a certain extent. Bec you know, so, you know, why have you focused more on the people and the customer experience side of things and not, oh. and not followed a traditional transport planner's route? Because I got very frustrated with building things that people don't really want to use and they use it because they have to. Yes. Because why did you get into transport planning? Because did did, is it something you always wanted to do? Um, 
No. I think like most, so I run another organization, as you know, called the Rail Innovation Group. And if you ask anyone in that group how they got into rail, they'll all say they just fell into it. Transport planning, I just fell into it. <laughs> I would love to say there's a backstory, but I fell into it. Can you fall, how do you fall into transport planning? Because don't you usually have to study geography or transport planning at university or something? Yeah, I did, I did do geography at university, but I then went off and had fun doing other things and then was looking for graduate scheme jobs and this one looked interesting. But I certainly didn't have a plan that I wanted to be a transport planner. Um, I actually had a vision that I would be somewhere exotic. Um, I'm not sure doing quite what, but somewhere exotic. Isn't Soho country. exotic? Oh yes, <laughs> I was actually watering pot plants on Soho on Saturday night. So <laughs> I now seem to spend a lot of time in Soho. Uh, yes, it's, it's uh, I'd, I'd love to say that there was a reason, but there isn't. I, I like it. And I like that you can have an impact on people's lives in subtle ways in the way that you push or you develop policy for the benefit of other people or the community. But let's flip this round to you because you are doing a hugely impactful job. Which one? Oh, all of your transport. I don't know, <laughs> do I, am I allowed to mention what you do? <laughs> Um, what do you do, Johanna? Or what's your backstory? Right. Um, so I think it's interesting you say when you speak to most people, they fell into rail. Um, I wouldn't say I fell into it, but I certainly didn't plan it in the way my career has gone. Um, because I'm, I, I started off as a politics graduate and I always intended to do something in politics don't know what, but that was what I always intended. Um, I had um, I, I had ambitions to work for the United Nations. Okay. Um, so just easy, easy ambitions to me. Easy <laughs> ambitions. <laughs> and I still and I still haven't given up hope on that. That may happen one day because somebody did just tell me, or or someone told me a couple of years ago that you should never give up hope on joining the United Nations because they have an exceedingly long recruitment process because it apparently can take you up to two years to join. Okay, <laughs> so well, someone has to work there, so <laughs> maybe it should be you. So, so you never know what, what may happen. Um, but I, I joined at, um, from air. I, worked, I initially worked in travel and um, particularly in the airlines. To get to the United Nations building. To get to the United so Nations building, there. obviously. <laughs> and I, I was a bit... Um, I was at a career path and I saw an advert for Great Northeastern Railway under okay. when the first train operators were when under British Rail privatisation and they were looking for customer service managers. Right. And so I was part of a new breed of people brought into focusing on customer service in rail. And I, th wow. I think at one stage as part of this podcast, maybe we should explore sort of like those early days of rail and, and a bit more about... GNER as it was known and maybe a bit more about franchising so I won't say too much about it now um, look forward to that episode <laughs> but I think um, there's a lot of affection for GNER and a lot of the ways that they they did things and I think it would be interesting to explore how they did things and why it still has such amount of affection in a 
in a privatised sector that not many people do feel affection for the train operators that too come and go and why that why that was so I think it would be interesting to explore it um, I I had the opportunity to go on secondment to York headquarters under GNER to work in the franchising team because they wanted somebody to join their bid team effectively for the 20-year franchise who had a had a focus on customer service and really knew how to deliver it and it was decided I was that person so you would have helped them renew their contract to run the trains for a much longer period that was the plan it never did happen did, um, they, did they win that contract we did win the contract but we only won a two-year extension and then we won a seven-year extension after that and the rest we shall say say is history <laughs> yes for anyone who doesn't know there have been a number of operators <laughs> on the east coast main line and <laughs> um, as part of that role i started um i was leading a lot of the station development for the east coast stations and one day a um a compulsory purchase order for king's cross station landed on my desk and i was told to deal with it and so for I think 13 years I dealt with it. Okay. So most of my career has been about delivering the redevelopment of King's Cross on behalf of the various operators of East Coast. This until is the, the donut bit on the side of King's Cross. The donuts. I've never heard it called oh, a donut before. The big sort of glass. Yes. Most people right. call it the spaceship, I think, oh. it's half a UFO when you look at it from the sky. But it could donut. be a donut <laughs> as well. <laughs> I do tend to think of food. <laughs> All right then. And then since that's opened, because that opened in 2012? The new station opened in 2012 to right. great acclaim. I'm very proud of that. And I then decided to retire from rail and I went off and ran a cake shop. Ah. So I ran a cake shop for, so very apt considering you thought it was a donut. <laughs> what was your cake shop called? My cake shop was called Johanna's Patisserie and um, I had a cake shop in a little place called Oakham, which is a market town in Rutland. And we also operated a little Piaggio coffee van. Wow. Um, which we used to do at Stanford Station. Right. So I didn't completely move away from, from rail. So still still did things in connection to rail. What was your favourite cake? My favourite cake, um, the favourite cake that customers used to buy from me was a sack of tort. Oh. Um, used to do quite a lot of those. What is but a sack of tort? A sack of tort is a Viennese cake um, because a lot of my cakes were based on, um, I used to do a lot of um, patisserie, a lot of French, a lot of Viennese style and it's effectively wow. a chocolate cake with an apricot filling. Oh, very tasty. Well, it is nearly. I should. I, I now feel as though I should have brought one in. <laughs> well, maybe that. Maybe we'll do that as our theme. <laughs> you can introduce a cake each time. <laughs> so clearly, you're still in the baking business. Um, although I, I did meet you in a rail context, so I'm guessing you're now back in rail. I am. Yes. So. Um, Cake, um, cake business wasn't so successful because although um, I did win New Business of the Year for Rutland oh. in um, 2013 and overall it was successful, you have to make a lot of cakes to make money. <laughs> uh, yeah, I imagine so. Um, so I decided that I wasn't making enough money to pay the mortgage and I ended up applying for a job 
in the Department for Transport after um, the Brown review. And we could talk about, we can probably talk about endless reviews and what they achieved forever and a day on any podcast. And I joined the direct award team. So I was involved in helping bring franchising, reviving franchising after the West Coast failed bid of 2012. And direct award means? And di- a direct award is where um, we negotiate with the incumbent train operator to extend the franchise to deliver a defined amount of benefits for a short period of time. I mean, they, right. were, they were originally envisaged to only be 12 to 24 month extensions, but as we know, many of them have gone on to be a lot longer. I, mean, I, I think the, the current West Coast uh, um, must be five years now. Right. So it, that one has been continually extended. Which I think is probably not very well understood beyond a small group in rail who get the, get the concept of what franchising and direct awards are. So again, we should cover that at some point. But yes, many people on most, a lot of people's rail services aren't actually profit-making franchises, are they? They're management contracts. They are management contracts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not profit-making um, because the direct awards, they could, they could be done for fixed fees, for a fixed management fee, but they could also be done along competitive tender lines as well so that you could still, okay. so you would agree what the profit share would be um, in advance, just like any franchise. And I think um, that just because they're direct awards, I don't think you should necessarily read into the fact that they're bad for the customer or they're bad for the railway operator either because okay. from they still have to go through the same transport business case as any franchise would be and if you were to probably measure direct awards in terms of affordability and value for money for the taxpayer they probably come out just as positive as a competitive tender because they are negotiated in the same way that any any tender would be done and they have to comply with um, legisl- European legislation in the same way so they still have a competitive edge to them to a sense that and they are bid against what the Department for Transport expects the profitability of that franchise to be regardless of whether it's a competition or a direct award right. and I'd say that that's probably displayed in the same way you know in the fact that Southwest Trains for example negotiated to a direct award and they didn't. They weren't reaching the value for money that they were seeking to achieve on that franchise, so they decided to run the competition instead. Oh, okay. Um, I think with your short description there is quite. Well, it brings us back to the point that I was making earlier: is that this is all based on numbers and Department of Transport spreadsheets and models, and defined outcomes and defined inputs. Yes. Not what does it feel like to use these services how will it impact your daily life and I think I mean that is problematic isn't it because I don't know where you know where the measurement came from I mean do you know where measurement started no which measurement well just how we measure transport business cases you know what what started it you know what is the history of transport business cases I'm not very sure but I do know that 
it's not the same model in all countries in the world. Lots so of countries don't build transport because there is or is not a business case above other schemes. We in this country do go f full, have adopted fully the business case system. And that's why I was wondering where did the, I mean, was that something that came out of the Labour government that we had to measure, that we had to decide how we were going to be successful? Because that's the thing about franchising when you sort of like, when you talk about rail, yeah, is that franchise, the Department for Transport or the government, and this is probably, you could probably look at it amongst various contracts across government, across local authorities, they like to buy tangible stuff, stuff because you can, can yeah. measure it. You can measure, yes, you can measure whether it's being delivered. I think that's probably a topic for us to then, let's seek out someone who can tell us the history of. <laughs> um, but, but so. History of measurement. So I know that, you know, we talk, you know, I mean, so, you know, just moving up to date, um, I currently work for High Speed 2. And we have a benefits framework yep. where we try and measure some of that unmeasurable stuff. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so so we have you know, so we have a a measure that is called delivering improvements to the passenger experience. Well it's encouraging there is such a measure. Um, but how do you measure it? How do you know? How do you know whether the passenger has had a better experience? Well, you, you go back to the metrics and the questionnaires and the surveys. But does that really tell you that you've been successful? No, but I suspect some people get paid a bonus if they do. But, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, my area of expertise, so we'll talk about the National Rail Passenger Survey, for example, yeah. twice a year. Various metrics are undertaken by Transport Focus, where yeah. they ask a series of questions. How was your journey today? Were you satisfied, dissatisfied? Yeah. You know, it's a measure in time. How does that tell you how successful the passenger experience is? Um, I think those fixed ways of measuring it, are, uh, well, we are able to all we are able to enhance those measures these days. Um, the concept of sentiment mapping is now quite widespread in retail and other industries. And there are some small companies bringing in that concept in, so you can continually monitor what's going on on social media, what's going on in your complaints letters or anything else, um, which is the actual impact of your service. If there is a big swell of people getting angry talking about the trains, then you know that the passenger experience is dropping. You don't necessarily know what exactly, what metric is failing, but you do know that in general, the population is less than pleased with the service or better than pleased with the service. So you say retail are using that as a measure? Well, I'm told by these companies that retail are using it. <laughs> so who's I mean, using I can get so someone in from this. Kind of so who's <laughs> using it in transport? Um, uh, I don't. Uh, I know some companies using bits of it, but I don't think that I'm best qualified to say who's using it. Sentiment mapping yeah. perfectly. Because it's interesting. Because because um, the great thing about working in the Department for Transport yep. is that 
you get exposed to all sorts of ideas and companies and policy areas and that. And I was involved in, towards the end of my time at Department for Transport, I worked in policy. So I moved away from franchise lessing and worked um, in, about, about 10 months in, the, in, the poli in transport policy, particularly in rail policy. Right. And I, on, and I got involved in three areas of policy. So one was innovation. Yeah. Um, two was accessibility, which I'm really keen keen on in terms of how we improve that, and also um, consumer rights because we had a lot of work going on at the time with um, EU directives about adopting the next stage of consumer rights, which is all to do with passenger compensation. That. But um, bringing it back to the innovation was that um, I got to meet lots of um, small, medium enterprises, SMEs, yeah. as part of that. And one of, one of the ones that I worked with um, at the time um, through the Transport Catapult is um, Ziffbound. Ah, and they were right. developing sentiment mapping. Right. But to my knowledge, yeah, and it was a great tool. I mean, you probably can still bring it up um, on, on the demonstrator online. It was great because they could look at any train yeah. in the country because they were collecting data from all over the place because these are, are data people and they could tell you whether a train or a station was happy or sad but to my knowledge nobody's taken it up uh, well i think given you've worked at the department for transport you'll um, you'll probably be better qualified to say why or why not that would be worthwhile for a train company to take up if they're not scored based on the outputs of that, well, but then why would they adopt something that might cost them money? Well, that's the flaw, isn't it? So Into, it, it comes back to how do you measure the passenger experience? Yeah. Because if it's not in the contract, you're not going to measure it. Yes. And you have to be able to compare like with like. And if you, if you have one operator doing it, yeah. Um, which they may do because they may keep it internally for their own commercial purposes, but not advertise that they do it. Yes, that they're we couldn't monitoring possibly it. comment on that. <laughs> but um, National Rail Passenger Survey allows everybody to be comparing like with like and to be on the same page. But the problem with National Passenger Rail Service, because it is only one day, yeah. if you have a poor train performance day, I, you have disruption and your trains aren't running on time, yeah. then you're not going to get good customer satisfaction because there is a direct correlation between how I feel satisfied as a customer, is my train running on time, am I getting to my destination on time? And it's only when that need is met that then I start thinking about all the other hygiene factors, you know, do I have a comfortable seat? Do I have Wi-Fi? Is the toilet clean? You know, can I get a cup of coffee? You know, all of those other things that make the journey more pleasant. Yeah. Well, encouragingly, I have, we are recording this two days after the European elections, but I did hear during that campaign, there is people saying, well, some people saying that the treasury should Improve, include well-being in its targets rather than just GDP growth, in which case that would filter down to 
not necessarily having to score everything on a financial basis to include health and well-being statistics in what your transport system is doing um, which given policy will take 10 years for it to filter down that might be that things that we think are better for example going for a walk in a nice streetscape may get scored favorably in a future policy framework you know, it's interesting you say about because i read something I, this i think it was this morning about um, someone, a transport operator in um, Europe that were gamifying how you arrived at the station. Okay. And I can't remember who it was because they... Um, As in, you score yourself against other people or you score well, if yourself... Well, if you arrive by, um, by bike or by walking, you could earn fit points, which would be translated into transport prizes. Points mean prizes. <laughs> Um, so, wait, wait, wait. so it's a way of discouraging people uh, by, you know, by using sustainable transport. Which they give you then, as your prize, more motor-powered transport. Yes. Right. Well, not necessarily more motor, <laughs> but more public transport. You know, so buses and so, so it was very much linked to public transport rather than private transport. Right. Okay. Well, that's the, I mean, any, every little helps. I wonder, well, the problem is that they don't have... Very few operators in Europe have any control outside the station area, so what can they do to encourage people beyond giving points? Um, working together for a nice urban realm and transport system integrated for the passenger experience. Um, but you see, that's interesting itself because, you know, going back to, um, I mean, and we will explore other transport operators around the world as part of this podcast. But We're going to go on tour. Does that mean we can go on tour? First stop, during Munich. During winter, during winter. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, we're both in Munich in a couple of weeks. Um, but I think it is interesting because do you think that other countries get that, um, that whole end-to-end -end journey better than we do in the UK? Um, oh, from... Um, Very, I would say very few do the end-to-end -end journey, let's say, more integrated, consistent passenger experience. Um, or have the, have the sort of control to improve all of those bits. I think there are countries that have better funded public transport, therefore it's just nicer and seems like it's integrated. Um, and there are parts of the UK that have quite a nice passenger experience throughout, but that's a nature of historic reasons rather than an overall plan. What's an exemplar in the UK then of where they've got it right? Um, the through passenger experience? Yes. Well, this is the thing, I don't think it's, I think it's, I don't think it's through um, action. I think older, smaller towns with a nice pedestrian centre with a train station in the middle just feels nicer. It feels like a nicer experience through the journey. Um, if you have to drive or if you have to sit on a bus through some poorly planned urban area to then cross a car park or a motorway to get to a suburban station, that's where it's less nice.
Because I think that's what's quite interesting, isn't it? Because probably we're at a stage where for the last 40 years, everything's been planned around the car. Yes. And maybe, you know, because of just the way our life is changing now, you know, people are becoming increasingly urban, younger people are not learning to drive. Do you, do you get a feeling that that's actually turning around now? We are thinking more about how people get around when by public transport. I'd say so. I'd say obviously more in urban areas and towns, you can see new apartments being built close to the station. Whereas in the past, it would be a DIY warehouse or a light industries area. Which isn't very pleasant, is it, really? No. But now you're getting new, newish apartments close to the train station, or that, the bit between the train station and the city centre, those walks are getting much nicer because people, well, local authorities know that it's a nicer way to get people in to come to their shopping district by making the walk nicer from the station. But they're probably doing that to attract people in, not to help people go into a train to go elsewhere. And I think that's interesting when you say about you know, a nicer walk and to attract people in, because what do you think, you know, as a transport planner, you know, um, transport role is in, say, reviving town centres? Because we all read about sort of like the demise of the high streets. Yes. But presumably transport can help. Uh, oh, yes, it can help to a, to a point. I'd say, yes, it helps. Um, until such point as your transport is so good that you become a dormitory town. <laughs> um, but that's almost an obvi- a, a different problem, isn't it? Because well, we've got a party walking past. <laughs> oh. Because um, I live now in Brighton, yeah, and Brighton's a, you know, it's it's London on sea, isn't it? Yes. Um, and it's a very vibrant city. It has excellent transport links. All, all around the city. Yeah. I mean, because interesting fact, more people use Brighton buses than London buses. Isn't Brighton buses the only local local council-owned bus company left in the country? I don't know if it's locally owned or not. It's operated by Go Ahead. I know that. Oh, right, it used to be. Um, but um, I don't know whether they still overall own it. I thought it, it was. And which we is also why it have um, uh, another bus company that are, are trying to um, become a sustainable bus model, but they are crowdsourced um, called the Big Lemon Um, but also we are the buses yellow the buses are yellow (laughs) (laughs) although I actually think they look more like bananas than lemons (laughs) Um, Um, all about food (laughs) (laughs) they do look more like bananas than lemons but I think I think they run on um, recycled fuel at the moment but they they will eventually be run on so some of them may be solar power I can't, I, I can't remember that but they're quite a new company yeah and so they there is a brilliant bus service in Brighton which runs most of the day so you could, so you don't necessarily need to to um, to get on a bus I mean guess get in a car and it has a really good train service all along the south coast and up to the capital yeah but it also is still a very vibrant town because it's it's a big it, it's a big place though it's a big place um it has 
this it doesn't really have industry as such but it has a lot of financial services there a lot of design services a lot of tech and a lot of tourism and two universities and two universities so so yeah. but it's it still has its problems i think with shops you know and just like everywhere else is but although lots of people commute into london it still has enough of that center but compare that to a place where i where we moved from and we lived for 10 years um actually just over 10 years um oakham in rutland and that has got the dormitory effect completely which is from geography wise is sort of halfway to nottingham it's it's in between it's, it's halfway between peterborough and leicester okay um, so right in the middle of the country right right in the middle of the country i mean yeah it's probably 20 miles from Nuneaton, which i think is the center of england i think okay. um so it is the heart of england it has poor transport links right. hourly train service no bus service so to speak of and I was quite heavily involved in the local politics of Oakham and Rutland and they were cutting bus services back because austerity. Yeah. So there was no there was no money to fund loss making bus services and yet interestingly for a place like Oakham Oakham is affluent but it also has quite a lot of um poverty in the area as well as lots of rural areas do and there are lots of people that rely on the bus services Logistics, to get yeah. around to get to hospital appointments to get to school to get to college or whatever and they were declining but but going back to your point you made well your question earlier on was about how transport planning can help with regeneration but if you are a, a local authority outside of a big city you don't really have much control over your public transport or local transport all you can do is facilitate all you can do is make the roads yeah swifter. absolutely you and can't operate a bus system when you can't operate a tram system so that's why the roads are prioritized and i think that's there's there's two interesting points within within that because one you're right um that is all they can control um, but also, in a small place like Rutland, they just don't have the resource to really plan things. Yeah. And beyond, you know, I mean, I think they had maybe one transport official <laughs> who's responsible for, I don't know how long, how big Rutland is, but, you know, it's a small county. It's the smallest county in Britain, but it's still a lot of work for one person. Yes. And when, and everybody in that, in that area because they're dependent on their car yeah if you can drive you are dependent on your car i couldn't drive before i moved there i mean, I, I moved there in my mid-30s and you and i had to learn to drive right because i couldn't i mean yes i could have um relied on public transport and i did probably for the first few years we we only had the one car but when you can't access transport, regardless of whether it's public or private, as a person, you're so limited. Yeah. It, limit, it limits your life. You know, so if your first train in the morning isn't until 7 o'clock and your last train is 8.30 and you live in a small town with not many shops, 
Not many jobs. Not many jobs. Yeah. Not much entertainment. It's life limiting. And that's really why transport matters. So that would be, what's the point of transport? What's the point of transport? We've answered it. We don't need to do a season anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the point. It's not really about transport. Yeah, it's about, it's about opportunity and about how that allows people to live their lives. Yeah. Big questions. Big questions. Right. Okay. Shall we have a cup of tea now? That sounds like a good idea. Sadly, no cake because someone didn't bring us cake. <laughs> someone can bring me a cake next time. In Munich. <laughs> right. So, thank you very much for listening to us. We have a whole program of questions that we would like to ask, covering things such as uh, what have we got? We've got smart cards, we've got high speed rail, we've got research. Uh, we've got emotional mapping on the experience. We've got cycle highways, mobility, future mobility, driverless future. cars. Driverless cars, one of my favourite subjects. Well, save that thought for next time. So we will obviously have some sort of jingle music coming up, but at the moment we're just going to do the pitter-patter of feet. <laughs> this is the feet. <laughs> and then we'll get some bus noises. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. Right, thank you. Goodbye, Johanna. Bye, Liam. See you next time.